today I have another incredible guest and someone that I really look up to uh, in our industry. This is Charlie Safro, the founder and president of CS Recruiting. Charlie, thanks for joining me. I was, you know, I was thinking about this this morning before we jumped on here. And we've actually, we've known each other for almost 10 years now. Yeah. Like, like almost exactly. It was like 2011. Yeah. Right after we started Optimal Freight that you and I first met, which is like, mm-hmm. just insane. It doesn't seem like that long. Thanks for joining me. So CS Recruiting, as the name would suggest, recruiting firm, you specialize in freight and transportation. And as far as I know, or could tell, you're the first in the game that's gotten any kind of scale that focused on our industry that wasn't like driver focused. Is that, do you know mm-hmm. is that true? I think it's true with the laser focus on the industry. There's definitely over the past 10 years, we've seen some of these larger recruiting companies, you know, pop up with a supply chain department or division or transportation group. But I'd say we're pretty unique. We've got a, a small group of competitors and companies that do the same thing, but a lot of them are smaller shops, like you said. But you were the first mover, right? I think so. All right. I'll take credit for it. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, thanks for joining me. I'm excited to have you. I said in that kind of like that lead in that that you're somebody I really looked up to. And I spent a little bit of time thinking about that. I mean, I think you're an incredible leader. You're a great human, but I kind of started spending some time thinking about as I prepped for this episode, what is it about you that I look up to? And and I had two really important observations that I kind of want to talk about. And I think they both fit together in a really interesting way. And I just kind of love your take on it. The first is like, I think that you're a really strong leader in a male dominated industry. And I say leader, and I don't say female leader kind of intentionally. When Tony Dungy was in the Super Bowl and they were coach, he was against the, the Bears and it was Lovey Smith. There was this scuttlebutt that they were the first two black head coaches. And I remember Tony Dungy saying something to the effect of like, well, you know, the goal eventually is that we're not two black head coaches, we're just two head coaches, right? Exactly. And, and and I think that you've actually really like achieved that, Charlie, like in the industry is that like you are, you're Charlie, you're just Charlie. You're not a female leader. There doesn't need to be that qualification. You're just a leader. The other, I think this dovetails into it is that like yours is like really a family story. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think it dovetails together because to me or from the outside, it's not like, you know, the traditional sort of narrative of like woman puts career on hold or like man puts career on hold to be able or or puts family on hold, right? Or Mm -hmm. like whatever that narrative might be to be able to accomplish what you guys have accomplished. Like you, I think it's a story of how like you and Chad, Chad's your husband for those Mm -hmm. people who don't know, but like how you and Chad have worked together, you know, over the years that it's been like a real team effort, something that I have aspired to in my life. Thanks. Do those, how do those observations feel true to you? I mean, do, the, do you think those are things that, do they, do they feel real? Is that how it kind of like feels on the inside? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, we certainly started out as a family business. And, and what's interesting is that we've evolved. And today, I'm the only family member in the company that's active. But I really do consider our team, our family. We've had some really, you know, tenured employees that we've retained six, seven, eight, nine years. And that's our extended family now. So it's still a family business, just different last names. I know we're going to get into imposter syndrome and stuff later, but on the first part of this kind of thinking about yourself as a leader, as opposed to a female leader, there's almost having to add female to leader feels almost like a qualification in some senses, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, look at how much she's accomplished and she's a woman. And and I just certainly don't think of you that way. And there are some there are some leaders in our industry that I think that have kind of gotten to that 
past that glass ceiling, if you will, in a manner of speaking. Mm -hmm. Does that feel true to you? Or do you still, you know, is there still a feeling that I have to maybe be better because I'm a female or maybe even I have to tell stakeholders, employees, mm-hmm. or clients. No, I, I understand. Like I'm committed to this. This isn't just like a mom hustle. Sure. Any of those things that you say to kind of put down, if you will, female leaders. That's a great question. And we can talk about, we've had a lot of changes in our organization this year that I definitely feel differently today than I did 365 days ago, but I absolutely felt that in the beginning. This is such a male-dominated industry, and not only did I was I a female, but I didn't have a ton of experience in the industry, so I always held, held that imposter syndrome feeling like, do I belong here? Are people going to respect me? Are they going to you know, see the effort I've put in? So it's a really interesting topic, and I want to say I feel like I've overcome that and and really in the last maybe year or two years, now I just look at myself as a leader. And part of that is that this industry does have more females now and it is more common to see females in supply chain transportation. But another part of it is just my confidence that I do know what I'm doing and I've built a successful business and doesn't matter what color I am, what gender I am. I'm the same person inside and out. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. That's, I, I think that's true. I mean, you're, you are, you are, like I said, I mean, you're a great person and, and just like kind of hypothesizing, I wonder how much the internet has kind of been like a, a leveling playing field there, you know, something like LinkedIn, somebody like you has a little bit more of a platform and somebody like Cassandra Gaines has a little bit more of a platform mm-hmm. or, or Shelly Simpson, you know, there's, there's just like, you have access to people in a way that's not gated maybe that would have been before and your you know your message resonates you're not looking for a gatekeeper to let you get your message out there or right you know it- exactly exactly yeah and it's it's funny i mean i have a, a little bit of a different um scenario because of my name and my name is charlie that's my given name so i think a huge advantage of linkedin and i look at this as an advantage is that there is a photo there and you can look me up and you can um see that i'm a female I still, to this day, I'm going to say every week I get probably two emails that are addressed to Mr. Safro or Dear Sir. And those are the people who obviously aren't looking at my LinkedIn profile. But back in the day when I was just graduating college and interviewing, so many people would stumble when I first picked up the phone and they'd be like, oh, oh, I was expecting a male. Is this Charlie? So I don't know if that was to my advantage or not, but I think that having LinkedIn and that presence and, and being able to speak freely about being a female and how it feels on that type of platform is just, I mean, I don't know if I would be in this place without LinkedIn. And, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit for my success and just like the evolution in the recruiting industry. We can, can kind of like get into the meat of this. This is a fun conversation, Yeah, but I, I probably need to have some structure here, but, you know, so that, so that it works. I, I, you, ha- you said something about, that I really, really wanted to carry on about, but but I'll, I'll kind of, let's have some structure and maybe we'll come back to it. But okay. as we talked about a little bit in prep, I want to talk about success. I want to talk about Charlie. I, I brought up Chad and and your family, but I really, I want this to be about you. And certainly they'll, they'll come up in the story, which I sure. think is, is powerful. But I want to talk about your success. I want to talk about failures. I want to talk about imposter syndrome, stuff we've already highlighted. So, mm-hmm. I mean, let's kind of like start all the way at the beginning. Let's start about, you know, Tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up, who you were growing up, what sure. it was like growing up. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you the the abbreviated version, but I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, born and raised and 
kind of right back where I started, but I do like it. And, and it just took a while to figure out that this is the, I had a good childhood and I, I want to give my kids the same experience. I had two working parents that were entrepreneurs. So it was in my blood. Even my grandparents were entrepreneurs and I was always a hard worker. I mean, I have three boys now, 10, 12, 14. The thought of my boys going to a job and working is like a joke in today's world, aside from COVID. And when I was 12, I got my first waitressing job. It was probably illegal, but I was helping my cousin who was a waitress at a different restaurant. I've always been a hustler. I've always been a worker, worked my way you know, through college, whether it was in restaurants or retail, and always just had something going on. So when I graduated college, I went to the University of Illinois. I actually met my husband on the first day of my freshman year. He was a sophomore, but just funny because it turned out that we actually lived about a mile from each other at home. We had just never met till we got to Champaign and, and met at the different high schools. Yeah, like rival high schools. When I graduated college, I was a marketing major and really wanted to go into like that cool, sexy advertising marketing industry. I actually got a job. I was I was hired as an intern, a free intern at a really cool marketing agency. I started, I think the Monday after I graduated. So no trip to Europe, no hanging out and in, enjoying my last summer. It was like right at it. And ironically, on day two of this internship where I was commuting downtown, I, I was going to be busting my butt all summer for free. Somebody had resigned and I was promoted to a full-time account coordinator. So it was an entry-level job, but it was awesome. I put myself out there. I took a risk. I wasn't going to be making any money. I was going to be living at home, but it was luck. I mean, that was pure luck and timing that I actually got a full-time job. I spent about six years of my early career in marketing and advertising. I don't know if you know much about that industry, but it's... It's a thankless industry. It's a lot of fun. It's a young, high energy environment, lots of happy hours, but it was a grind. I mean, I remember times when at nine o'clock at night, I was still at the office and true story. My boss looked at me and we had a coupon, literally a graphic of a coupon that needed to be at the client the next day in a hard copy. And he's like, go book a flight to New York and get on a plane and go bring this envelope to the client. And I was 21 years old, right out of college. I was like, uh, mom, can you drive me to the airport? So um, that's the type. And, you and, couldn't and, take and, an Uber? Uh, not then, not then. No, and kidding. I think back and it's, it's really funny. And I I'm not ashamed to admit this. My starting salary was $18,000. That is what I was paid in 2000 for this position. And I was happy as a clam. Let's slow, let's slow down. Let's slow down. Okay. Let's have- Okay. But you know, your your thing about there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into there that I think is gonna be really interesting. Mm-hmm. But your point about I'm not ashamed to admit what I made. A lot of times when I tell my story that that anybody who's listened to this has probably heard, I'm like, look, I got out of law school, I couldn't get a job. I took a job at Echo as a sales rep. Mm-hmm. And I was making 30K. I had 200K, you know, in student loan debt. And I'm making $30,000. Like, you do what you got to do, Charlie, right? Exactly. Like you, you talked about living at home. Like, you know, we're, we're certainly privileged that we could do some of those things in part because of support from other people, probably, right? Like, Absolutely. my parents weren't paying my bills exactly, but you were able to live at home. I had certain, you know, opportunities because I knew that I wouldn't be homeless. Like, the worst thing that would happen, I got a job. I'm proud that I have a job and what have you. You come from a family of entrepreneurs. That's pretty interesting to me. Your grandparents were entrepreneurs. Your parents were entrepreneurs. If you, looking looking at your life now, not that you're old, you're still very young. What do you think you learned maybe as compared to other folks who you now know whose parents weren't mm-hmm. entrepreneurs? That mm-hmm. seemed normal to you. They were both entrepreneurs. Your, gra- your grandparents were. So 
you know, how do you think that's maybe a different experience than other people have? Yeah, no, that's a, a really interesting question. And right before the year ended, my leadership team did an exercise. I don't know if you've ever heard of limiting beliefs, but it's a really interesting exercise where you're given a list of phrases and you have to pick one that resonates with you. And these phrases are, you know, everything from I'm not good enough to I have to do everything perfectly. And the phrase that I chose is, I have to work hard. And Mm -hmm. it evolves into this discussion. We had a moderator taking us through it. But, you know, where does that come from? And I think part of it just came from, you know, maybe maybe fear. My parents were strict parents. If I wanted to buy something or go somewhere, it it was out of my budget. I had to earn that money. I had to go babysit on Saturday night to be able to go to Great America on Sunday and, and do what I wanted to do. But I had to work hard. That was a big part of, as I grew up, just who I believed I was. I was a worker and I could always find time to work and I could always, it's interesting, I've always had like commission-based jobs, whether I was a waitress or I worked at Nordstrom for many years. So I always knew that, you know, it just, it's hard work and I could turn it into money and go back the next day and make more money. So it was an interesting, I'd say like revelation for me when I looked at this list and I'm like, wow, I, I don't know if I should thank my parents or be resentful that I did start working very young and work my way through college. And I probably missed a lot of things that other kids got to experience because they didn't have to work, but I love work and I have a passion for working and making a difference. And it's, it's shaped who I am today. One of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I wanted, I really wanted to learn about other people's experiences in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I was very young. I had this realization that I'm only ever going to see, I literally, I remember I couldn't have been five, six years old or, I mean, I, you know, who knows? So sure. I was somewhere between, I was somewhere between five and 10, let's say. Uh-huh. I still to this day remember standing in the bathroom in my parents' house, like this, like, you know, little powder room bathroom, half bathroom and looking in the mirror and like looking in my, my own face and saying like, this is, I'll only ever see the world through this, this lens. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this is very similar. My parents weren't entrepreneurs, actually. You know, my mm-hmm. parents, my parents were, were people who worked for other people. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, my, they still do to this day. Mm-hmm. And, but you, some of, some of your experiences were very similar to mine. And the way it's manifested in me and myself is like, I need to take chances. I need to go do more because I don't want to be somebody who works for somebody forever. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm very explicit about that even now. I mean, I have a job and I told the, you know, the, the CEO of our company when I first met him, Hey, I, if you want me to work for you forever, I'm not, I'm not going to. And you said there's a joke you know, kind of, you were thinking about your kids working a job mm-hmm. is a bit of a joke. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? I mean that, I mean, COVID aside, it's just, we live in a different world these days. These kids are overscheduled. They're busy. I don't even know if they have time for a job, but I mean, my kids are very fortunate. They go to summer camp, like the thought of you know, telling them that they need to start interviewing and lining up a job for the summer is they they would literally laugh at me. I mean, if they want to earn $3, they empty the dishwasher or vacuum. And it's still like those old, you know, chores and I'll I'll give you $3 that you can spend on your Xbox game or whatnot. So I don't know. I don't know if that's just the little bubble I live in. And, but I know when I was 14 and in eighth grade, like I was making my own money. I was hustling. Well, it sounds yeah. like you're still trying to work that in, right? You're still working that into into their everyday lives, right? So they they are working, right? You yeah. are kind of getting those values. But you talked about your parents being entrepreneurs. You talked, you know, they they had their own businesses. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to do when you grew up, beyond maybe just like 
having your own business? Sure. I I think my parents expected me to go into one of our family businesses. I actually did give my dad's business a try and it was not for me, but my mom, for as long as I can remember, she has owned daycare centers. I was probably one of the few girls in my friend group that graduated college and did not want to be a teacher. That was, I think, in my mom's perfect world. I would have taken over and worked for her, but a job around kids was something I truly never considered. And, and I understand now why that was not my destiny. And my dad, his father had started a equipment leasing business, which I had no idea what that meant growing up. I just knew that he dealt with big equipment and he was like a bank. And I, I had... I had a, a weird moment in my career after I, I worked at really two marketing advertising agencies for the bulk of my career. But in between those jobs, I took a position and it was not what I thought it would be. And I lasted 48 hours in this role. And I think that's an important story because we see that happen with our candidates. And it's embarrassing. And you kind of look back and you're like, what did I miss in the interview process that made me think this was going to be okay? But I'm actually like, I, I learned so much from that experience in retrospect, but when it didn't work out, I called my daddy and I was like, I don't know what to do. I just quit my job that I liked because I thought I had something better. I started this job. It is, it is not going to work out. It's not what I thought it was. I don't know if the interview process was deceiving, but a lot of, a lot of unknowns that were realized the day I started. And my dad said, well, this is this is the time you're going to come work for me. He actually gave me way less than I was making. I had Good. to commute to the suburbs. It was, I, I got a 20 minute lunch break and he would like literally time it. He was my hardest boss I ever had. But after a year of working there, I was like, this is not, I am not a numbers person. I do not like finance. That's a very male dominated world. And at this time I was probably, you know, 23, 24, so maybe 25, but it was, it, it was not what I wanted to do. So yeah, I, I think my parents always expected that I would go into the family business and they kind of like, you know, carved the way for me, but that took a lot of courage to realize that it was kind of the easy way out, but it, it was not fulfilling to me. So did you, did you have any sense of what you liked and you talked a lot about what you didn't like. Did you have any sense mm -hmm. of what you liked? I like this client service. I mean, that is really what my whole career has been around, whether I am servicing clients and designing coupons for them or helping clients find talent. I think even going back to my days as a waitress and then at Nordstrom, like that is what Nordstrom is all about, is the client is always right. The customer is always right. And you do what is necessary to make a good impression. So that is probably like the biggest foundation of how I've grown my business is treat people with respect, assume the client is always right until they're not. But whether it's internal with team members or external with clients or candidates, it's service. And you've been in the same type of industry. It's a, it's a hard industry when you don't have a tangible product that you're selling. I think that jumping into it a little like that imposter syndrome always comes up because you're giving me money for something I said, something I did versus giving me money for here's your, you know, here's your purchase all wrapped up with a, you know, a bow. And, and I feel like we exchanged something equal. I, I think that was ingrained in me really young. And it's, it's something that's really hard to process, but I'm, I'm past it now. I know the value of my services, but certainly when I started this business, I could not believe that people would pay for introductions. That's essentially what we do. As I reflect on kind of two things you've just talked about, mm -hmm. one, 
your experience in your interview process of like, or, or in, in getting that job that you only kept for 48 hours, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a mutual selection that goes on there in, in hiring, right? Like the company selects the candidate, the candidate selects the company, both of you sort of failed in there. And as CS recruiting, you know, an interesting observation is as a recruiter, your client still makes the choice, Mm -hmm. right? Like your client still says, I want this person whether they, whether you brought them to them, they sourced them on their own, someone else brought them to whatever that might be, they're still making the choice, but there is a reputational, like you put your sort of stamp on this person and say, I think that this person is somewhat pre-qualified. I've seen your business evolve in that sense over the last 10 mm-hmm. years and how you've approached that problem. It probably factors into that feeling of imposter syndrome a little bit even more, right? Because every failure sure. feels personal. For sure. And I mean, I know you spent a lot of time in the brokerage industry and it's the same game. I mean, we are brokering people. You were brokering freight or capacity on a truck. And when you're dealing with humans and emotions and things that are so out of your control, I think that's where, you know, recruiting can get a bad reputation. But, you know, we've had difficult conversations with clients that you know, we really need to help them understand that our job in the process is to listen to your direction, go out, build a pipeline of people, put the right ones in front of you, you select who you want to hire. And essentially that first day we lose control. We've done our Mm -hmm. job. And while we stay engaged and we want to see success, and I love, you know, when we see our our candidates two years later being promoted and, and making moves in their career with the company we placed them at, At the end of the day, I'm not training them. I'm not responsible for their retention. And that's where most of our candidates, you know, we we lose our deals usually around that like 25, 30 day mark where maybe it is an imposter syndrome thing or the Peter principle, but people get in the role and they're like, this is not what I wanted. I think I'm just like, especially forgiving to that because I made that mistake once myself. And I've also seen some of our, you know, hires come into the organization. And within a week, it was like, wow, we missed, we missed a big red flag when we interviewed them. And this is not what we thought we were getting and and vice versa. So yeah, I think that's, that's a really big part of it. I'm going to blow my own structure here for a minute again and kind of follow this, follow this path a little bit. You don't train people like you don't train them. You don't, you know, develop them or mentor them once Mm -hmm. they get somewhere from, from my vantage point, you know, something that I've not just learned sort of before what I do now, but in consulting what I do now, that is the biggest variable. Like every, Mm -hmm. you know, everything else can be selected for well, but if you, you know, you bring somebody in, you have expectations that they know or do or whatever, and you can try your best to validate that in an interview process, but like, you still need to do that foundational work. Nothing is plug and play, right? Like it's just, it's just not, they need to learn your organization. They need to learn your process. You are different than where they came from before. When you get down to the nitty gritty, putting that aside, Mm -hmm. every bad hire that I've ever made, the person told me in the interview process why they were going to be a bad fit. And I just didn't listen. Or like Mm -hmm. I didn't hear it or I wasn't listening for the right things. Mm -hmm. So if you're creating a company, you're founding a company, you're a leader, like you have to hire, you have to hire better. Yeah. Um, It's one of the things that leads to failure, right? Is bad hires. Most people hire with a sense of urgency. There's different philosophies on how you approach hiring and building your bench strength. I can see from your angle, like you've got a, a normal person in front of you. They say most of the, the right things and you're like, great, we found our person. Let's get them on and I'll move on and get back to my work because 
I mean, you weren't a recruiter, you were a hiring manager and recruiting was just one small piece of your role. I think, I think we hear what we want to hear. One thing that's funny for me is, you know, we, we are interviewing people all day on behalf of, of another company and representing other clients. But when we recruit for our own team, I always find myself trying to talk someone out of the job. And when I think back, it's like the people who did doubt themselves were the ones that we should never have hired. And the people that just continued, it's kind of opposite of imposter syndrome. Like they did believe in themselves. And I was like, are you sure you can handle this is a grind? You're going to get calls at seven at night from a candidate who's canceling their interview in the morning. And is this really what you want to sign up for? But I try and almost paint like the worst picture because I think yeah. if people are interested, that's those are the ones that are going to stick. I think that's a good observation. I've tried, I've tried to do a, do a similar thing. Mm-hmm. of painting like, Hey, this is, this is hard or this is bad. And, you know, having done, you know, started a few companies sort of from scratch, like people underestimate what that, how much more work okay. that is. Right. Mm-hmm. And how much more work <laughs> that, that really entails. I'm going to touch on failure really quickly. Again, like Michael Jordan famously was cut from his high school basketball team. You know, I, this mm-hmm. that's like kind of the story. Mm-hmm. Did you have any experiences like that growing up that sort of shaped you? like something big that sort of either there was a failure that maybe motivated you? Like, did you have a hobby where you failed? Like, did you have a, did you play sports where you were cut from a team? I, you know, did you get fired when you were a kid from yeah. waitressing at 12? <laughs> what comes to mind there is I was a gymnast and I was a high school gymnast. I did not compete formally after high school, but my gymnastics, it's actually very similar to my recruit, my career in recruiting. It was self-taught. I was not, you know, I was working. I was, I was waitressing at, you know, the breakfast shift. I wasn't going to a fancy gym and learning from a great coach with the right equipment. I taught myself how to do flips in my backyard on grass. And I, I kind of learned the hard way. So when I got into high school, I was good enough for varsity, but I was definitely like probably the rustiest or like the mm-hmm. roughest gymnast on raw. the team. Yeah, very raw. And and I think my my coach saw that I had talent, but I needed to be developed. So I went through high school for four years and I was on varsity and I was always just like, we know Charlie's going to come through with a solid 7.5 or 8 on the B routine. Like she'll always be steady, but she's not great. And she's not you know going to win the championship, but she will help contribute to the team. My senior year, something really crazy happened. Like I always just was like, I was super motivated and passionate, but it was my own self-reliance. I was like, I have to make myself better. No one else is going to do it for me. And my senior year in our conference meet, Everyone fell off the beam except me. And it was probably the best routine I ever had. And I ended up winning the beam conference championship. And I just remember I was in the newspaper and my coach was like, I I can't believe it, but good for you. And I mean, we had some really great talents on the team and they just messed up that day. And so I think for me, that was like my big aha moment where I was like, okay, like I had it was a little luck and I do need to to reference. It was luck that these other people fell on our team and the other teams, but it was also my persistence and just like me being hard on myself to do the best I could do, knowing that I was never the best, knowing that I was never the star, but I could carry the team and be consistent. And that was my like one moment to shine. So hmm. I think I learned a lot from that experience. Like to, to see myself in the newspaper, I was like, wait, are they sure they got this story straight? Did a lot for my confidence just in general as an athlete, as a worker, as a student consistency so that you can kind of like rise to the occasion when it's there right like you've talked about luck a few times my personal philosophy is that it is 99% luck yeah but you've talked about a couple of times just kind of that like being consistent 
in your routine or being consistent in how hard you work or be being consistent in the effort you give or whatever that might be so that when there is something that happens that's just pure luck yeah you're you're yeah. there to you know, that's kind of the idea of like creating your own luck in a manner of speaking. It is. And I, I think it goes back to what you asked originally. Was I one of the first people in the space to really carve out a supply chain logistics recruiting company? And if I was, it was luck. I mean, it was the path mm -hmm. that I, I didn't know where I was going and I was in the right time at the right place with the right people in my network. I think that the success since then is is more than luck, but I think a lot of it, you have to just realize why things happened. And when you look back at it, you're like, okay, it was my hard work and persistence, but I got lucky and was able to shine because of that. I think that's a great way to conceptualize it. And that's a good transition to kind of go back into your career for a minute. So mm -hmm. you talked about like, so you should get out of school, you get into this, like the, the, the fancy world of marketing, they fly you to New York. It's not quite what you think it's going to be. You try some different things, you go work for your dad. Then what happened? And then how did you get to CS recruiting? Yeah. All right. So after about a year with my dad, I made probably one of the hardest career decisions to go back into the advertising world. Ironically, I was recruited. It was the one and only experience I had being recruited where somebody had seen my resume and I was out of the industry at that point in time, but I was a good catch because I had the experience and I kind of did something new. So I went back to the marketing world until I had my first son. Chad and I had been married for three years. We had our first son in 2006 and all my friends were stay-at-home moms. And it was, that was my quarter life crisis. I mean, hopefully I lived to a hundred and, and that was literally my quarter of my life, but it was my quarter life crisis where I was like, wait, I had a baby. Now do I need to stay at home and go to, you know, music classes and park dates with my friends? Because mm -hmm. that's what you're supposed to do. I did go back to my job after my maternity leave. And that's when I realized like, this is not worth it. I did have a baby to be a mom. I like working. I like being around adults and having stimulating conversations, but it was back right into it, traveling and staying at the office till eight at night and being right back there at six in the morning. So I, I went back for about six months. I actually worked on the Gatorade account. So you can just like imagine it was a really awesome experience, but it was fast paced, high demands. Um, at the point, my, my husband out of college, he was a freight broker. A distant relative of his had a, a trucking company with a freight brokerage and this was 2000. So it was, you know, 20, 21 years ago, but he had been a freight broker for about three years and he was doing the dial for dollars. I, you know, I got a load. Now I need to go through my role. Yeah, it's terrible. My career. It's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah, it's he commuted. We lived in the city. It was a, you know, a, you know, just, it was not, it was not the long-term career for him. So he had an idea back in, in the early 2000s to start an online marketplace where shippers and carriers could meet up. There was a, you know, a subscription-based service where carriers could log on, shippers could log on. Eventually they had a 3PL product where brokerages could get on and, and find shippers and find loads. But I think of it as like a match.com way before it's time. So Chad started that business. He actually, his brother, who was a couple of years behind him, joined him. At the time that I went back to work after my maternity leave, they had about eight employees and it was definitely startup. They were in a really random office in the city and still building it and figuring out what they wanted to do. And I approached him one night and I said, I don't know what to do. I, I love working. I love the feeling of being successful in my work, but 
I can't do it anymore in marketing. Like my heart's not there. We have a baby. And I had actually already had a nanny too that I had lined up. So I was like, I don't want to get rid of her. And I was like, let me come work for you. And he brought the idea to his brother. It, they were gung-ho about it. And I was like, I don't care what I do. Like, I will get you coffee. I will staple papers. I will file. I mean, this is back in the day of, you know, we had a lot of papers going on. I went and resigned from my- Back in the day, um, anybody who's a transportation company listening to this, they, you know, like how much paper, they still file. That's part of the problem in the industry. Crazy. But yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but it's like crazy to think like all these folders and filing cabinets. Yeah, right, right. Where is that these days? I resigned and I maybe took a week to regroup and before before I was going to start with them. And the night before I was going to start, Chad just kind of had second thoughts. And he's like, this is weird. My friends are going to make fun of me. I'm hiring my wife, like just stay at home with our kid, do what everyone else is doing. That was the one night in our 25 year relationship where he slept on the couch because I was so furious. I was like, I just gave up my whole career. This is the plan. We cannot veer from it. I called his brother. His brother's like, still come in tomorrow. Don't worry. Like, we'll get through this. So I did join their company when they had about eight people and they sold their service to shippers and then carriers. So um, I quickly fell into a recruiting position where they needed to hire shipper sales reps and carrier sales reps. It was not a brokerage, but mm -hmm. targeting the same audiences. And I taught myself how to recruit. I mean, it was just a need at the time where I was, I'm going to say I was a glorified admin for probably the first two months that I worked for them. And all of a sudden they were like, okay, we need to hire and we don't have time to do it. So Charlie, can you figure it out? And I'm definitely a resourceful person. I love learning and reading and, and just leveraging my network and my resources. So I figured it out. This was 2006. There was there was very, very early days of LinkedIn, but I was on Craigslist. I was making flyers and hanging them in coffee shops where people could tear off my name and my number on the bottom and get in touch with me. So really just put myself in a very vulnerable position where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know pretty quickly if I like someone or not when I talk to them and I've got you know good judgment and, and I think I have good people reading skills. So taught myself how to recruit. And I stayed with Real-Time Freight for about four years. I counted one day, I think it was 108 hires that I had brought into the company over the four years and a lot of entry level in the beginning, but that evolved and got to a point in 2010 where my husband and his brother sold their business and I had to make another tough decision and they sold their business to Internet Truck Stop. I stayed on with Internet Truck Stop and the new investor for couple recruiting projects that I wrapped up and I was kind of like in this no man's land. I had a, a baby at home. I, I This is my third baby at home, by the way. So time, time evolved. And while I was working there, I had two more kids, but I had a baby at home and I was just like, you know, working a couple hours a week. And I remember having a very specific conversation with a friend of being like, okay, I'm just going to suck it up and be a stay-at-home mom because, you know, Chad sold his business. I have no part in this anymore. He's going to move on. I don't want to go back to the corporate world. So I guess this is just, I'm, I'm going to surrender and just do it. And it all fell into place. I mean, I, I, it's a very organic story of how I built the business. I had a couple of freelance recruiting gigs and this, this was right around that time. Now this is 2010. LinkedIn was in the picture. I was on LinkedIn as a logistics recruiter. And before I knew it, someone from a freight brokerage called me and they're like, Hey, can you help us find some carrier reps? Talk about imposter syndrome. Like what is a carrier rep? But okay, sure. Like I, I know what carriers are and I know how to sell a technology to a carrier, but do I really know what a carrier rep does in a brokerage environment? So one thing led to another. And the, the cool thing about recruiting, 
all industries, but recruiting specifically is you make a positive impact on someone and that reward comes back to you somehow, sometime in some form. So, you know, I would, I would talk to five people and hopefully one of them would get the position and the other four, if I could leave a good impression and make them feel like I cared about them and I was here to help them, whether they used me or not, those people moved on with their careers and then they would call me as a hiring manager. And now I need to hire people. And I enjoyed the experience when you set me on those interviews two years ago. So that's really how the business was built. It was word of mouth. It was referrals. It was staying committed to that service aspect of what I talked about. And I worked independently for say about 10 months where I look back at some of the emails and some of like my original templates for the invoices I sent. And I'm like, um, all I wanted to do was like, you know, earn enough to buy the purse I wanted. Like every deal was like, okay, if I, if I can close this guy, we can go away for the weekend and I'll be able to pay for it. And so it was very like transactional thinking about the way mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. doing deals and earning money. And one thing led to another. And I got to a point where I was like, I'm now overwhelmed. I went from having one freight brokerage client to probably 15. The only person I knew who had experience in the industry was my husband, Chad, and he had been waiting out a non-compete. So the timing was right. He joined the company, CS Recruiting. This is not offensive to him. It is for Charlie Safra. Everyone's like, oh, it's Chad's business and you work there. But he's the first one to admit, no, this was this was her and I joined her team. So um, the original we, domain was like Charlie-Safro, right? Wasn't it? it? It's actually a really funny story. The original domain was charliesafro.com. Yeah, right, okay. was, you know, charlie at com. We probably got five, six inquiries before we changed it where people were like, why did you name your company Charlie's Afro? And that's how they read the domain. And I was like, we were so confused and people would like respond and be like, sure, but why is the name of the company Charlie's yeah, Afro? as an Afro, right. Exactly. So anyway, it became a, an internal joke. We changed it quickly. Let's just call it CS recruiting. There's no confusion there. But long story short, Chad and I worked together, the two of us out of a home office. We had three kids um, at home and we got to a point where I was like, okay, I need to now make a big decision. We're either going to do this and we're going to put you know everything into it, or you're going to go back and find a corporate job and I'm going to keep doing freelance or maybe be a stay-at-home mom, but I I was motivated and just put some feelers out there. I was introduced to a girl who ironically had experience in recruiting. She had also worked at a trucking company. She was maybe two years out of college. And one of our second cousins knew what I was doing at the time. And she made that introduction. And I ended up meeting this girl, Beth, for breakfast down in the city one day. And she's now our vice president. She actually has her nine-year anniversary tomorrow. So long ride with wow. her and, and many yeah. successful hires after her. But I'd say that was really like the the turning point of the business. Like now we have an employee. Now we need insurance. Now we need an office. Now we need business cards. And Beth and I joke about it a lot, but it does come back to like, I felt like the minute we hired her, like now things are real. Like now I have someone else that I'm taking care of and she is counting on us for a salary and a career and benefits. And I think from that point forward, everything, everything shifted, like the way we organized the business, but just mentally I was, I was in it. Yeah. I mean, somebody was relying on you in a way that, mm-hmm. might, you know, that, that was totally extrinsic, like your kids and what your family, like, you still have Chad there and maybe, you know, or whatever, but then all of a sudden it's like Beth comes in and it's like, you know, you have to deliver for her. I think it's really interesting as a juxtaposition here 
you've talked about hard work and being a grinder and and what have you. And then, you know, finding this balance of work and life, even in starting things and even in the early stages, right? For you as being a mother, but for anybody, it's, I just don't want work to be my whole life, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think in startup culture, you know, I, I, I've, I've said out in the universe before that, like, I'm not a fan of hustle porn, right? And hustle mm-hmm. porn is this concept of like, you know, glorifying the hustle, but in part because like, I've been a victim of it. How have you kind of learned to find that balance between or strike that balance between, okay, I've got to get this thing off the ground. This is on my shoulders. You know, I've got to learn and hustle and figure out something new that I haven't done before with, I also have like to take care of myself and I have to have a life. I have to take care of my marriage. Like, you know, right. That's, that's one thing. Like my marriage almost fell apart with one of my startups because mm-hmm. I just couldn't invest in it because I was too tied up in the company. You know, so right. my marriage, my children, or whatever it might be. Like, I just, I want to invest in the thing that I love to do outside of work. And people get afraid of maybe getting too caught up in that. So how have you learned to strike that balance? Yeah, I've definitely had a a mind shift in the last two years about that. And going back to what I said about my limiting belief being, I have to work hard. I know I can always make time for work. And I think that the first seven, eight years of CS recruiting, for me, it was about the time I put into the company. And yes, I worked smart, but I also felt like I had to work long hours and hard hours. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, I really think what got me going was I had an infant at the time CS recruiting started. And I was up at two in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning, feeding this baby. And I am always the kind of person who I walk around with an ear pod in and I always am listening Mm -hmm. and learning and reading four books at once. My mentality was if I'm up at night, I'm going to do something with it. And that was the time when I started to look at resumes and I would get on Career Mm -hmm. Builder every 30 minute feeding I had, I would um, scroll through Career Builder, save resumes. And I realized like, oh my God, I just made a lot of extra time. It was almost like a competitive advantage. If you think Mm -hmm. of it, like if you were to wake up at three times throughout the night and give an hour to your work, think of all you've accomplished before somebody opens their laptop the next morning who logged off at the end of yesterday. So that was a big part of it for me is just like taking advantage of every minute. But I've always been a worker. And and what I've realized recently is I have to lead by example. And especially now with like working from home and burnout, if I send an email at nine o'clock, I'm like, okay, good. I sent the email. I got it out. I can move on. But I never really considered what that does to the other person and what that does is like, oh my God, so now I have to respond. One, I realize I create work for myself after hours because I'm active and so people respond and now I have a to-do list that I need to finish before I go to sleep. But it was just sending the wrong message. Like I mm-hmm. was, and, and it was easy for me because it's my company, it's my baby. It was literally my fourth child. It, it's, it's a hard transition. I'm a leader more than a worker now. So I really can focus on that balance, but Also leading by example and just encouraging my team, work smart during the day. You may take a call at six o'clock, but then if you need to go to the doctor tomorrow, I'm not going to ask you where you are when you check out for an hour. It's, It's trust, it's balance, it's setting people up to be successful. But I think in the beginning, talking about imposter, like that was the one edge I always had was I could work hard. I could work long hours. I'll stay Mm -hmm. up till midnight working. And I probably had to do that to get where I got to. But now I'm like, okay, that's not what it's about anymore. Now it's working smart and contributing with value. What you kind of described in all of that was 
the term work-life balance has evolved to sort of be a dichotomy. You have work mm-hmm. on one side, you have life on the other side, and they're on a seesaw, right? So you see and you saw one or the other, but you you described was finding time to learn mm-hmm. and finding time to do some of these other things. It's more of a continuum than it is a seesaw. So when yeah. you have some of that extra time or extra motivation to invest, you got to take care of yourself and do some of the other things. I'm sure you have hobbies outside that you, that you invest yeah. in. You don't just constantly do those things. But when you do have that extra bit of motivation or you do have that extra bit of time and you feel motivated, you feel comfortable or whatever to invest mm-hmm. in it, that's when you do the, that's when you should do the extra as opposed to just being a brute force object and running through the hustle porn wall of do more, do more, do more. I think it's an interesting mm-hmm. observation. It's funny. My kids have been home essentially since March and, and doing e-learning, but they've asked me a lot in the past couple of months, do you like your work? Because you're always working. And today it's so different. My kids are playing video games at night because they can't go anywhere. So I might as well sit next to them with my laptop and we're still together. But they've asked me a lot recently, like, do you like your work? Because you always have your laptop open. And I do like my work and I'm not married to it. It's become less of my fourth child or it's my stepchild, but I am motivated to work because I like what I do. But I also recognize, is that the message I want to send my kids? Like, I want them to know I like my work. I want them to know they can find a career that they like, but it doesn't mean that you have to always be working. And so you have to be really, always on. Yeah. To your yeah. point about and being also, a leader, I think that's a really important leadership lesson to learn. My, my father, I was going to say famously said, it's famous to me. It will become uh-huh. famous to other people because they hear me say it all the time. My father was always said, you know, right? Like actions speak louder than words. It's one of the things I think my dad has said to me 800,000 times in my life. Actions yeah. speak louder than words. And to your point about if you send an email at nine o'clock or you send a Slack message over the weekend or whatever it is, that's the example that you're setting for other folks. Yeah. They look to you. Mm-hmm. And even if you say, oh no, take, take the time. It's fine. You know, take time. You got to take care of yourself whatever. And then you don't do those things. You don't live that because they're dealing with imposter syndrome. They want to be you. They are looking up to you as their leader. I don't have children, but I can certainly Mm -hmm. see what you mean. When I Mm -hmm. look at the relationship I have with my parents, I looked at what my parents did and not what they said, right? And what my parents did was prioritize work and hard work. And and that's also like probably where I got the praise the most from, right? When I worked Mm -hmm. hard versus when I was just naturally smart or naturally good at something showed I got the praise when I like had a job at 13 years old and got a paycheck or exactly exactly no and I think I mean one thing that I do want to mention and this is the luxury of being a business owner is that our office for CS recruiting has always been five miles from my house so um, my kids schools are three minutes away while I've worked really hard I used to when my kids went to school, take a break to go to their school play and go to the teacher's conference. And everyone in our office knows our nanny because she would bring the kids in after school. They'd grab a snack and I'd Mm -hmm. get to say hi to them at three o'clock. So I've definitely been privileged in the sense that even though I'm working long, like I am present with my kids, whether it's physically or mentally, like they see me a lot. Well, one of your keys to success, I mean, kind of sounds like there's, there's been this underlying theme of learning for hmm. you, mm-hmm. I kind of have three themes that I picked up on so far that we'll come back to, but one of them has been learning. 
Yeah. And, and one, and one of the things that you have invested in learning is about yourself and what you need to be both successful and happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that you, so that you are able to be present in all of the things that you're doing so that you lower your overall stress level and you can have it all. This is one of the things that I also want to learn in this podcast. I went through a very similar experience when I left my last job because I was miserable. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started companies and I had done some things that were really cool and really interesting to some people. And I was miserable. I mean, I was absolutely miserable. And I went through a similar experience where I said, okay, well, like, what do I need? Right. Mm -hmm. So how did you, how did that play out for you? Or how has that played out for you? Was it intentional? Was it something that just kind of happened over time? And if it, maybe if it wasn't intentional, how would you go about creating yeah. some structure if somebody else wanted to emulate that? No, it's a, a, a funny question. I mean, like I said before, I, I'm a nerd in that sense. My family has always made fun of me. Like, can't you just relax? Like you always have your nose in a book. You're always reading some article. You're watching a TED talk. And I've always been like that. So for years, I've kept that information to myself. And I I wasn't focused on myself. I was focused on, you know, learning about manufacturing so we could go, you know, down that path mm-hmm, with our business. Mm-hmm. And it was not like self-growth and it was not focused around me. It was focused more around business. I, I had a, a major epiphany a year ago. If I'm going to do all this, I should share it because I don't expect everyone on my team to care about reading or be a reader or want to listen to a TED Talk. But if I could share one snippet from that half hour TED Talk, that is what I'm taking away mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm start sharing it. So we had a, a shift in our business model right after COVID hit where our COO resigned. Part of my whole story is that while it was my business and it was my name on the business, our leadership team was myself, my husband, and a a male COO who we had worked with previously and recruited him back into CS Recruiting. And when they were there, I, I will preface, so the COO resigned early COVID and my husband, Chad, about maybe in January of last year, we started talking about him taking a backseat to the business. He was just, he's, he's, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He likes starting businesses. He was, he was checked out. So he took a backseat probably a month before our COO unexpectedly resigned. And all of a sudden I found myself the sole person on the leadership team. And I built the business by working. Like I was working in the business, not on the business. And when I look back, I had to do that. I had to learn. I had to lead by example. I had to believe in myself and put myself out there. But when he left, I was bitter and angry and confused for probably a week. And then all of a sudden I was like, you know what? This is an opportunity and I'm going to turn it into that. If you ask anyone in our company, I have shifted big time from being hands-on to trying to take that leadership role. And part of that is learning and sharing and giving that information back to my team. And my my New Year's resolution for 2021, I dread Mondays. I always have. I get the Sunday night scaries, even though I own my business and I don't have to work on a Monday if I didn't want to, I dread it. You and Garfield, uh, (laughs) you both love lasagna and you both hate Mondays. Exactly. So What I did, and I I shared this with my team publicly, I said, I want you guys to know that my resolution for this year is no meeting Mondays. And we have our status meeting in the morning. So I see everyone's face on Zoom and it's about a two hour meeting with people coming in and out. But after that meeting, do not put anything on my calendar for Mondays because it's not my day. I've now dedicated my Mondays to learning. We've had three Mondays this year, but when I tell you like 
Sunday night, I am excited. I am lining up the TED Talks I want to listen to. I am bookmarking, you know, pages that I want to go back and read, but I'm also very intentional about what am I going to do with this info after I collect it? I know we haven't gone gone down the imposter path too much, but that is that is my solution to it. Like, yes, I felt like an imposter. Yes, I felt like I don't know what I'm talking about, but the one thing I can control is learning about it and yeah, at least having yeah. that knowledge. We touched on it a couple of times, and I think that's that that you've gone back to every time that it's come up. Mm-hmm. You've gone back to well, I like I just kind of got to educate myself on the problem, yeah. or I have to. I mean, learning is is kind of the biggest thing that we've we've talked about over and over. Mm-hmm. It seems like you also don't get caught up in what the other like, you focus on what you can control. Like one of the other themes that I picked up from you is discipline, and that discipline is really about putting structure around things. The irony of imposter syndrome is I'm worried about what other people are thinking, mm-hmm. but your solution is, is focused on yourself. Well, I can do yeah. two things. Number one, I can treat people in a way that is valuable, like that values them. That's important, right? How you treat people is the number one thing. And then I can educate myself. I can learn. I can be curious Yeah. instead of just like rejecting the imposter syndrome and saying like, they're wrong. Right. You kind of ask yourself like, okay, well, like what if they're right? And you use it as motivation. You have that, then you have the discipline and not necessarily focus on them, but focus on yourself. What do you think about that? Yeah. Have you read Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty? No. Oh my God. It's incredible. I highly suggest it. But in the first chapter of the book, I wrote down this quote because it's so true. And it says, I am not what I think I am, and I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. So what, okay, so I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. And that's what our society has done to us is like, I, do I know who I am or is my perception of myself based on other people's perception Mm -hmm. of me? Sorry to get all deep and philosophical here. No, that's good. That's what I want. Yeah, I feel like that that like sums it up. We do know who we are deep down, but so much so many of our actions and the things that we say and the way we live our lives are based on other people's perception of what we're supposed to be. And at this point in my life, I'm supposed to be a leader and I'm supposed to be out of the business and working on the business and whether it's good or bad that I care what people think about me. In this situation, it's good because it has pushed mm-hmm. me to be what they think I am. Um so sorry if I went down a tangent there, but I just feel no. like that wraps it up about like, you know, any sort of like insecurity and I can position myself how I want to be seen, but I have to work hard to earn that. And, and part of that for me is just learning and also vulnerability, just saying, I don't know the answer. Like I will get back to you. Oh my God. I think that's been the most transformative thing that I've learned how to do in my life is, is yeah. for me, it came from law school, right? I mean, they kind of like drill it in your head as like, okay, you're going to be an attorney. And if you just make something up, you're going to be liable for that. Yeah. Like that's like, that's really, really bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's almost like a joke about lawyers. They, you know, lawyers kind of just never profess sure. an opinion on anything. They're like, I need to get back to, you. I need to research it. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. the observation I've had is that I think people, especially younger people who are coming up in their career, they think their value is knowing the answer. Yeah. You see this in freight and transportation all the time. Customer calls and says, I want to know blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm your guy or I'm your gal. The value is not in knowing the answer. The value is in 
the problem solving. The value is in getting the information. The value is in, because someone else can do the transaction of the thing, to your point about being transactional from earlier. Yeah. So saying yeah. like, hey, I don't, you know what? Let me go to the person who has the best answer or information on this. I say this all the time. Look, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not an expert on anything. I'm just curious. I'm just a yeah. curious guy. Uh-huh. And I cultivate mm-hmm. relationships right. with people who know things. Mm-hmm. So if I need to know something about recruiting, I go to you or I go to KJ McMasters. I go to somebody who's the person. Right. 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 And I think that's, that is such an important lesson is when you talk, you know what you're going to say. You have no opportunity to learn anything. Listening is something I need to work on and I'm, I'm embracing that this year, but we listen to someone so we can reply. We don't listen to understand. And that's one of my biggest learnings is when I am talking to a client or pitching someone on new business, they want to talk. I just need to convince them just enough that we're capable mm-hmm. and we're confident in our services, but they don't want to hear my spiel. They want to tell me what their problem is. And then it's my job to put our service into action to solve their problem and, and show them that we could solve their problem versus just talking through it and you know boasting that we can do it. Well, and to your point about shifting your thought process from transactional, right? I go into every conversation I have these days and my goal is to connect somebody. It's just to be a connector. And mm-hmm. I want to connect them to three things. And it's either I'm going to connect them to another person. I'm going to connect them to some thought leadership that's out there. Sometimes I connect them to something that's good. I help you with this problem. Sure, sure. But Mm -hmm. that change, to your point, that change in mindset is I go into that conversation saying, I just need to learn about you versus I need to sell you on something. I need to sell you on my ability to do what you can. I don't. I just need to listen to you. I need to share and I need to show value. Sales is so much easier than we think because we think it's us and we're on the stage and we need to know everything. But I I mean, I would say the best advice I've gotten in my adult life is sleep on it. If you have a difficult decision or somebody asks you a question, instead of faking it till you make it, which is part of what I've done and I'm good at faking it till I make it or fake it till I actually learn it and then I can leverage it. But just think about it. And everything is different the next day. Like that is really a lesson you have to learn the hard way. But when you learn it, you're like, I do not have to answer this now. I do not have to make a big decision this moment. I need to think about it, talk to some people, get my resources together. and Get some distance from the emotions. Get some distance, exactly. Get some distance from the emotional part. We talked a decent amount about imposter syndrome, but we didn't talk really much about failure. Mm -hmm. So spare me another couple of minutes to talk about failure. One of the hypotheses that I'm working through on this show is that people don't do things because they're they're afraid they're going to be found out as an imposter. Mm-hmm. And they think failure is the end. It's either, it's binary. Yeah. I, either, yeah. I either succeed at every single thing or I fail at every single thing. Was there a time at CS or even one of the things you talked about with failure was you took this job. You only lasted 48 hours, but you found a way out. It wasn't the end of the world. You found a way out. Mm-hmm. And and you had some tailwinds that helped you with that, but you were still able to, you were still able to find your way out. It didn't have to be the end of the world. Sure. Is there a time at CS Recruiting or elsewhere where you failed pretty big, but it didn't sink the ship? Yeah. In, in a recent example is not embracing my role in the company for the last five years. And I don't have regrets because I had to be in the business to understand what it took and to motivate people. But I think one of my failures was that I relied on two 
men to run the business. And I disengaged from things that didn't invigorate me. Like I do not want to talk about the finances. So just tell me we're okay. And that's all I need to know, or tell me when there's a problem. So it's not a regret, but I I probably failed my team and I probably could have built stronger leaders and served people better if I would have embraced leadership and not felt like I always had to recruit or always had to be the one to talk to the client. But one specific story that comes to mind is, I don't know, five, six years ago, we were having conversations with a large trucking company that had a brokerage arm, multiple conversations. We had met them at a conference. We had followed up. And they finally said, hey, why don't you come to our office and see the operation and and we'll talk more about this. So Beth and I got on a plane and we went down to their headquarters and it was a very good conversation. And I knew the business at that point. Like I was confident talking about brokerage, recruiting and, and what we could do. But we had a nice lunch meeting. And at the end of it, they said, okay, we have two more recruiting firms coming in this afternoon to give their presentations and we'll let you know our decision on Monday. And I walked out of there and I was like, if I would have known that, I would, it, this would have been such a different experience. I'm a highly competitive person. The thought of losing an opportunity because someone showed up better than I did is it's, it's gut wrenching to me. Mm-hmm. And I know we could have put together a killer presentation and we could have gone in there and, but we were just being ourselves and they didn't, to their fault, like they didn't prepare us. They didn't say we're about, you know, this was not until our conversation was done where they're like, oh, and by the way, there's two more firms coming in and they're presenting to us and we didn't get the business. Was it a failure? No, we were just fine without that business. I don't think it would have dramatically changed anything, just some, some more revenue that we lost out on. But it taught me this lesson that like, you have to show up a hundred percent every time. Like I'd rather be overly prepared. I'd rather have notes everywhere and, you know, spend, spend the night before listening to a million different podcasts to educate myself than, than not being prepared. And that was like an awakening moment, both for Beth and myself, where we were like, if we just would have known that we were like, we thought we had the business. We thought they invited us to have lunch and schmooze and we'd start working on the assignment next week. That was a moment where I was like, wow, I failed because I had all the time in the world to prepare. And I thought they just wanted to get to know me and know they wanted to know what we could do for them. Well, and it sounds you didn't follow one of your own sort of like pillar yeah. Your sort of things, which is learning, right? You didn't ask the right questions. You didn't, you didn't go into learning. What advice would you give yourself on day one of CS recruit of, of recruiting? I think the the hardest part of recruiting, like I said before, is that we are brokering humans and there are emotions and there are things that are out of our control, but there's also things that are in our control. So one of the things that we train our team on and we've like gone as far as to bring in a medium and train our team on intuition and how to trust your gut and pick up on someone's vibe pretty quickly there's there's this whole concept where there is a fit for everyone the majority of the world is capable of getting a job and it's the right job for them at that time and so you really have to think about that i might not like this person now if i think he's lying to me or if i think that his resume is is all bs i need to call that out and walk away but mm-hmm. i don't like his personality but that doesn't mean that he's not right for my client a big part of what we've done is matchmaking and i think honesty is something that we probably You said it before that like we as recruiters, we have to stay unbiased. Our job is to find people, evaluate them, and then 
provide those people or that group of people to the client. I'm not going to tell the client which one I think they should hire. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever done that. And when I'm asked to do it, I you know work with the client to put together a pro con list and really evaluate the two people that are in the final stages. But I'm not hiring this person. That whole notion of just humans. We may do a deal that goes bad. When we screen that person, they were perfectly healthy and impressed us. But two months later, they had an addiction that came out and they stopped showing up to work or they showed up intoxicated and the client comes right back and points the finger at us. You just have to be honest. Like This is how this person presented to us. We would not have put drunk in front of you if we thought that this was going to be the case, but this is what you asked for. And we did our best to evaluate it. And we really thought this was a a good person. They're still a good person. They just made a mistake. So yeah. Or they're um, struggling with something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And those are the hardest conversations because we were paid to do it. And so that's a big difference. Like you're, you're a connector. I'm a connector too. And I've always been a connector. You need a babysitter. I know someone you're moving to San Fran. I have a friend there that you'd really like, but when you're being paid to be a connector, it's this whole other level of pressure where it better be worth it. And mm-hmm. that's a really hard thing to grasp. This has been an incredible conversation. I think we could talk the whole rest of the day. I know we could. We need to have another session. I have questions I didn't even get to. So yes, we (laughs) definitely need to have like a version 2.0. In this conversation, what I'm trying to do is kind of like pull out some of the like key themes for folks. Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. think I have four for you. Number one, how you treat people matters more than anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second thing is be consistent so that you can rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. So that when luck happens, you're prepared. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Find find time to learn and be curious. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is maybe similar to the second one, but it's have the discipline to focus mm-hmm. on what you want to accomplish. It seems like you're like dealt with failures just pow- mm-hmm. and and dealt with your, the feeling kind of like these imposter syndrome, which is, okay, these things happened. Let's put them in a box. Let's understand them. Let's learn why they happen or let's learn what's going on and let's move forward. If failure is the drowning man, you know, mm-hmm. right? If you heard that kind of like analogy where like, don't get, you know, I'm not going to, we're not going to both drown. Right. Failure is the drowning man. I'm not going to let the drowning man pull me under. What do you think exactly. about those themes? I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. And I like what you said. Like you've got to you've got to work hard so when the luck happens, you're there and you could take advantage of it. So I don't want to deny that, you know, part of my success or anyone's success is luck, is timing. Everything happens for a reason. That's like the way I live and think. But if you aren't prepared for that moment, then you just lost your opportunity. I appreciate you saying I'm disciplined. If you asked anyone on my team, a whole other, I think we talked about this before, that there's a, a really cool assessment test out there called the four tendencies. And it talks about accountability and mm-hmm. you know how how we why we hold ourselves accountable. And for some people it's it's your heart on yourself and you have expectations for yourself. And for some people it's I want to please others. And for some people it's both and for some people it's none. But in a business setting, I'm the least disciplined person. You tell me every morning I need to, you know, check this and do that. I'll do it for three days diligently. And then I'll completely forget about it. In my personal life, I meditate 
every day, twice a day. I've never missed a day for years. I do yoga. I like, I read books consistently. And so it's like, it's funny because I am motivated by myself and what I think is important. I'm also a people pleaser, but I please people when it, I feel like there is value, any kind of value in, in pleasing them and putting effort in it to please them that comes back full circle. It ties into failure though. That ties into the idea that like you're not, people are complicated. And, yeah. and so you have discipline. It's not binary. These outcomes aren't binary. It's not all success or all failure. Mm-hmm. And it's not so not, it's also not all discipline or all chaos. All of this is a spectrum or continuum. I'm a very hardworking guy, whatever, whatever. But like, I'm also fat. Like you've met me, I'm really fat, right? And so, but I'm fat because I don't put the energy and effort into those, to the things that will not make them make me not fat, right? Mm -hmm. Then if I put that into, if I put, you know, what I put into this podcast or what I put into, you know, my clients, I'd probably, I mean, I, I maybe I wouldn't be like an Olympic athlete, but I'd certainly be skinny. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's not yeah. all one thing or the other. And, and I think that's the important, your discipline is around your mindset. You're not getting not that concept of like, oh, well, I failed this thing over here. Mm-hmm. And so that, that does, that devalues all the other stuff that I did over on the other side. No, it doesn't. That yeah. failure over here is the drowning man. And all of these other things that you showed discipline for are... Yeah. Or, or standalone things, you compartmentalize mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to like put that out there. Like I have talked to my team since I took this assessment and I've had my team take the assessment. You guys need to know that I'm a questioner. That's where I fall. And this is what mm-hmm. a questioner is. And I own it. Like in my interpretation, I'm a little bit selfish because I do things that are important to me. Now you asked me to do this podcast it's important to me for our relationship. It's important to me to put myself out there. So yes, I want to do it. But if you know somebody asked me to do a podcast about a topic about you know the Super Bowl, no, that's not important to me. That's I, I'm not even. I could right. educate myself, and I could probably talk about it for an hour with you know some some time to learn in advance. But not important to me. You want me to do something? Tell me why it's important to me, and it will be at the top of my list. And I, that's just the way I operate. And you may be the same or different, but you need to know that about me. And I'm not ashamed of it. Like, you know, it's who I am and I've gotten this far being that way. So maybe the last one is self-awareness, not discipline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Self-awareness. And I think that comes a lot from just, yeah, just the the type of stuff I do. I put myself out there, but I also am like, I immerse myself in curiosity and and learning. Well, Charlie, thanks a ton for sharing the time. I know this is going to be a great episode. How can people reach out to you if they want to learn more about you, if they want to learn more about CS? Appreciate it. So it's not charliesafro.com anymore, but it is CS Recruiting. Google us. You will find us. We're outside of Chicago. And I know I talked a bit about you know transportation, freight brokerage. That's our roots in the business. But today we really recruit all aspects of the supply chain. We work with asset providers. We work with 3PLs. We work with shippers, the manufacturers, distributors, technology companies, equipment companies, 
any position that will influence the supply chain, whether it's in you know raw material procurement or analytics or leadership, that's that's where we play. So if you're a candidate and you're you're curious about what's out there or you're desperately looking for a new opportunity, we'd love to talk to you. And if you're a hiring manager or a business owner or even a talent acquisition rapid a company, we can help you. We will make you look good and would love to learn about your business. So CS recruiting and you'll find us there. Cool. Thanks again, Charlie. Thanks, Ryan.